0: Welcome back to Documentary First, an inside look at documentary filmmaking. I'm Jason Rugg, joined, as always, by Christian Taylor.
1: Hey, Jason, how are you? So nice to see you. It's been a while.
0: Yeah, Happy New Year. We uh,
1: Happy New Year to you. We,
0: we recorded our last episode. We were like, this is our last one of the year, and it was actually for this year. (laughs) It came out like three (laughs) days into this year. So we recorded it last year, but uh, for everyone else, that was our first episode of the year. But for us, this is our first episode in 2024
1: in 2024 uh, and it's going to be an exciting year I'm really looking forward to this year this is the 80th anniversary of D-Day so that means it is a big year for the girl who wore freedom and we have lots of exciting stuff going on uh, I mentioned this before but we're um, on the cusp of signing a huge deal with Canal Plus uh, where it will have the girl who wore freedom in every French speaking country in the world um, and then amazing. recently there's some rumblings about a deal with American public television so we're hoping that's going to be coming through uh okay. david patterson everybody knows our uh, f- our producer friend david patterson he's kind of come back on with a vengeance and has decided that we've got to get it in as many theaters as we can this year we've already had some really big hits uh the alamo draft house d- is interested which is a huge theater oh, chain wow. um yeah. yeah so um so we're super excited about that that's just um lots of stuff churning with the girl who wore freedom and I can't wait to see, see what happens. Um, and maybe this year I'm really hoping that we will start seeing residuals from our distribution. That would be, when I get that first distribution check, it's going to be like, put me over the moon. Uh, I can't wait. Uh, <laughs> I've heard that's so a there's special that feeling for
0: people. Like
1: I believe I'm going to have to people, take a picture like, or
0: something. Yeah. A lot of people frame it. Like they frame their first residual check. I mean, Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a big milestone. I really hope that happens this year. That's awesome.
1: Me too. Me too. Uh, And then, you know, we've got, um, there's just so much cooking. So I'm super excited for 2024. I'm glad you're going to be here with us and along for the ride as always, Jason. Uh, However, I hate to really um, bring the mood down, but I do have to share some pretty sad news, and my heart's really been broken over the last couple of weeks because I learned that our dear friend George Champa passed away. Um, I don't mm. know if you remember him, Jason, but he was a World War II veteran. Yeah, he is um, yeah. an amazing guy. Do you remember him?
0: Yeah, I remember. He was a he was a filmmaker. He like became a filmmaker when he was eighty or something, right? And he uh, he lived out near Palm Springs, and he yep. just. He just kept churning. <laughs> he like hit retirement and then just kept going.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, when well, the first time that I met him, I will never, ever forget the first time that I met him. My friend Michelle Coupe, who was a producer on The Girl Who Wore Freedom, said, You really have to meet George Champa. He's a World War II veteran, but he's also a filmmaker. And I said, Really? And so I said, Well, where is he? And she pointed him out to me. We were at a dinner in Normandy. And I looked across the room and I could not find anyone that looked like a world war II veteran in the area that she was talking about. I'm like, I don't, I don't see who you're talking about. And she like almost walked me over to him to point him to me. And it was this cool laid back, like LA type dude with these black glasses, you know, and a baseball cap. And he was sitting though, you know, kind of in the area with 80 and 90 year old people that were clearly elderly veterans, you know, and he honestly did not look more than 65, 70. I could not believe it when he, when she told me how old he was. Um, And so we became friends. Obviously we had this filmmaking thing in common and he just was so young at heart and has, you know, definitely a storytellers, uh, you know, makeup. I mean, he was, had a story every time you turned around and he was just so compelling to listen to. So we became friends and, uh, we had him on the podcast and we had, we did about five episodes with George, uh, which, um, oh. you know, we're talking about him now and we want to honor him now. And so we want people to just get to know him. And the first episode that we did with George, which was episode one fifteen. uh, it really—he just launched into his own story. Like I don't think we talked for the first—I don't know how long. <laughs> I may have said one or two words, um, but it didn't matter. It was all about yeah. George and his story. And he was with the Gray's Registration Service, um, just a horrible job, as you can imagine. World War II is bad enough, but um, you know, but being in the Gray's Registration Service—I can't just um, imagine how horrible that was. So we want to re-air this episode, you know? Yeah. I, I was going to yeah, say, I think that's
0: you, the, first, the first time I had heard of the Graves Registration Service was when we had him on. And he explained yeah. what they did. And it is horrible. And, yeah, I, he's such a special guy. Such a special guy. I'm so sad you, we've lost you him. Know, it, but he it touched so
1: many people. It is so horrible. When you think about like that he that he's a guy in the service just like all these other guys are and his job is to bury his buddies I mean yeah ugh. Yeah. yeah the world it's, is gonna miss him
0: yeah definitely is so you want us to to listen to his first episode right that's what we're gonna. <laughs> Yeah, we're going
1: to listen to that. Um, Let me just tell everybody, George Champa was born in 1925. He passed away on January 3rd, 2024. He died peacefully in his sleep, succumbing to um, cancer, unfortunately. He lived in Palm Springs and he was surrounded by all of his loved ones. Uh, He produced six documentaries on World War II with the main goal of remembering all of those who fought and died in the war. Uh, And he wants to um, impart these stories of their survivors on people's hearts. So we just ask that you guys would... Go and visit his website, Let Freedom Ring for All. You will see his documentaries there. Uh, they all, um, Let Freedom Ring, is The Lesson is Priceless, Let Freedom Ring, Memories of France, Remembering the Fallen Heroes of the Mighty Eighth. They Will Never Forget, America's Finest Ambassadors, Our Armed Forces, and D-Day Veterans Return to Normandy 75 years later. So those are the films that he made. You can find more information about them at uh, letfreedomringforall.org. And um, yeah, listen to this podcast, get to know George, and then go and listen to the other ones if you're interested. Episodes 116, 117, 120, and 121 all talk about about George and his stories and his life. So uh, we want you guys to get to know him. And he just stands as a huge representative to me of all the people that fought and died for our freedom.
2: All right. Well, let's go to the recording. Hello, my name is George Ciampa. I'm a first-generation Italian. My parents came from Italy, and I'm one of ten. There's uh, me and my uh, sister. We're, they're the lone survivors now, and the rest are, are gone, Kevin, I guess, wherever that might be, up in one of those stars, probably. Anyway, I want to tell you something quickly about what happened to me. Uh, I was first I was born in Boston on June 16th, 1925. Lived in Winthrop, which is a suburb of Boston, near the ocean. And uh, I, started the, I started the first grade when I was five years old because um, in Boston, they had no kindergarten then, and you had to have your tonsils and adenoids removed before you could go to school, which I did at home. Two doctors with an ether bag. And uh, anyway, I remember that distinctly. I want to tell you about something when I was five years old. My uh, little cousin, Teresa, who was eight years old, died of a heart defect. And uh, it, it was um, uh, a tough time for me and for everybody, of course. But I remember at the grave site, and this is the important thing I want to tell you about. My mother was standing next to me. Uh, she had lost her voice before the funeral. And at the time they were lowering the casket in the grave, my mother screamed, Teresa, real loud. And I, my little five-year-old, and I was frightened. And i never forgotten that. In fact, I can visualize that right now. And uh, so that, and then another, uh, another situation with my grandfather, uh, where they had the wakes and the homes. And I remember that distinctly and, uh, being from an Italian family, like everybody's in the kitchen, speaking Italian, English, laughing, crying, eating, smoking. And my grandfather's in an open casket in the bay window and, uh, hate bay windows now. And my wife can tell you about that, but that's another story. Um, but anyway, I remember that I was a bewildered little boy standing there looking at my grandfather. And uh, after that, I thought I was dying. So my mother would have to take me to the doctor. he put a stethoscope on my chest. My heart was beating, so I was fine. I was just a nervous kid. We left Boston in 1934 in a 32 Chevrolet. This is in the Depression. And there's seven children and my mother and father in the car. Three others, one was married, one was living in California. And the other one was staying with my sister that got married. So seven of us and my mother and father, my father drove, my brother who was 17 and another brother who was 20, uh, drove, they drove day and night, uh, because they didn't want to hear me. I want to ask you guys a question. If you're married and you have kids, what did the kids say to you before you got to your destination? Are we there yet? I originated that. <laughs> when are we going to get there? We're we there yet. I drove everybody crazy. They drove day and night. No motels, no restaurants. So we pulled a flatbed trailer, and my mother had a little, one of these little stoves, a Bunsen burner, where she heated hand goods that were in the flatbed trailer. Anyway, it took us a week to get, to get to California where we were going. Okay, enough for that. I just wanted to give you that background. Now, let's go ahead. I graduated from high school the same day I was 17 because I started school when I was five, remember? No kindergarten in Boston. Got to start first grade. So anyway, uh, being uh, that young, in the first grade, I was 17 the day I graduated, which was on my birthday, June 16th, 1942. Uh I went to work in a in Douglas Aircraft that was building Navy uh, dive bombers, SPD dive bombers that operated from aircraft carriers. My job was to help get the planes out on a on a tarmac and put final touches in the cockpit. So I'd sit in the cockpit pit and uh, do all the fun, final things that had to be done there. And I thought, my gosh, it'd be great to fly one of these. Had a brother in the Air Corps and a brother-in-law in the Air Corps, and uh, when they were home on leave, uh, I'd watch them, and I looked at other guys in the Air Corps. They walked with a swagger, their hats tilted. The girls were crazy about these guys. and I thought that's that's what I want to do. So I went to take the the test for Air Cadet, and I uh, flunked it twice. Uh, my eyes were 20/22, 20, and you had to have perfect vision 2020. And so the doctor said to me, well, just think, George, maybe if you got in the Air Corps, you might get killed. I wasn't even thinking about death at that point. It, I just thought of the, the glory of it all to, to be in the Air Corps. And so anyway, I got drafted shortly after that when I turned 18. This whole year I was 17 working on those airplanes. So they sent me to Cheyenne, Wyoming, and they put me in the 610th. Graves Registration Company. And I said, what the heck is that? What's Graves? What does that mean? I don't want anything to do with Graves. So the only training we had other than infantry basic training in the cold weather in Cheyenne, Wyoming, this is November, drafted in November uh, of uh, 43. So it was November, December, January, February, March and left there in April. Let me tell you what happened. Right next to us was an Air Corps base, Fort Warren. And one day, guys came over because they were recruiting for pilots. And the, the, this is only three months before D-Day. And so we were losing a lot of pilots. And, you know, bombers didn't even have fighter pilots to protect them at, during that time. So when a bomber went down, 10 guys went down with it. So I wanted to be a fighter pilot. But anyway... Uh, what happened was they whole lot of the guys were gathered around around them to sign up. The guys that wanted to get out of the outfits that they were in. And so I didn't think about talking to my company commander. I just said, wait a minute, you telling me they lowered the eye requirements to 2030 with no glasses? That, yep, that's the deal. I'm ready. Let's go. So I took all the tests, I passed everything. Physical eye test. had a right home to Teachers that knew me, you know, for, uh, for letters of recommendation, whatever you want to call it. Anyway, my company commander found out about it, and it, he blew his top, and he sent me home on furlough. I came back, and he put me into the 607th grade's registration. Remember, I was in the sixth. 60th with a bunch of young guys. The 607th, everybody was older than I was, and I was a replacement for one person that they needed. And they were going overseas right away. So I was at replacement. On the way overseas, the guys are all kidding me. Don't worry, Champa. They can turn the ship around, take you home. President Roosevelt said no 18-year-old will set foot on foreign soil. I'd had a, a cousin that was 17 killed in the Navy for that. So anyway, then, uh, uh, and I want to say one other thing. About the Air Corps dropping the eye requirements to 2030, no glasses. I have found nobody that knows about that. Nobody. I can tell you, I don't know how you can ever find out, but that's the truth. That's what happened. That's how they accepted me. So I didn't get to get in, in the Air Corps, as in Grazer Illustration. We landed in England in April of, of uh, 44. Uh, we had four platoons and headquarters that made up. 124 guys, enlisted men and officers, the first, second, third, and fourth platoon and headquarters platoon. So we were in Bristol. They broke up our company into uh, into platoons for some reason. I don't know why, but they did. And I was in Bristol, and uh, while we were there, our company commander got us together, and we just lost 18 of our guys in Exercise Tiger. It was an exercise off the coast of England, slapped in the sands. You can read about it. Get the book, Exercise Tiger. You'll see in the index in the back, you'll see the 607th Grade's Registration Company. All the guys that were killed 18, their first lieutenant, first sergeant, sergeants, corporals, five privates lived. And it was a very secretive thing. I don't want to go into it, it takes too much time. And get the book, and you'll find out all about what happened because. The guys, it's, there, there were almost 800 guys killed on. on uh, there were four LSTs out there practicing a landing. I'll just, just tell you a little bit, and uh, a German E boat <clears throat> sunk three of them, and uh, one of our platoons, our first platoon, was on. On one of the ones that was sunk, never recovered their bodies. Eisenhower put out a directive for the, the to find the. Uh, to find the survivors because they had maps on them where the invasion would be. and uh, the five guys that were survivors were put in a concentration camp practically barbed wire camp to keep their mouths shut. this was this was very secretive for several years that nothing ever got out. There's extra, there's uh, commemorations that happen over there every day in April, April 28th is when this happened just before the invasion. And uh, 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 Laurie Bolton was a niece of one of the fellows uh, who was killed, Louis Bolton, who was a sergeant, 24 years old. Uh, she was not yet born, but she goes over there every year for that commemoration of uh, Exercise Tiger. So enough of that. So now it's our turn to get out of Bristol and go to Land's End and St. Austell, which is a little village close to the ports Falmouth and uh, Falmouth, I remember that name. Portsmouth, I think, was the other one. Anyway, we were in that area. I don't remember how long it was. Probably a week, maybe longer. We were. I and another fellow, who has passed away, uh, Gus Satsos, who lived in Michigan, a uh, really great guy. Uh, he and I were were buddies, and he and I were billeted in this house with this couple, uh, mom and pop Nebron, and. Uh, we were only there to sleep. And I took my wife and kids there 50 years later. 50 years later, we saw the lady that lived next door who was 30, and her little daughter was two when we were there. And we, I saw them again when she was 80, and her daughter was 52. And there's a long story attached to that because I I kept in, after uh, mom died, I kept in touch with her and then her daughter, Ursula, Uh, She lived in England, 50th anniversary was the first time I went back to Normandy and we saw Ursula and her husband and kept in touch with Ursula until she died. And then uh, after that, uh, let me tell you one thing. We had dinner at her house, at the daughter's house, Ursula. Looked at the tablecloth and it was an embroidered tablecloth, long one. And uh, the table was real long. And so Ursula said, one of mom's boys gave that. To her, I said, "Oh my God, that was my mother." Because they communicated, because we couldn't write home; everything was censored, and he, he couldn't even write. So she wrote home to my mother, tell her I was okay and everything. And uh, th- so they kept in touch with each other. But anyway, Ursula and I kept in touch with each other until she died. But I met uh, I met uh, her uh, son who lives in uh, Dipswitch, England, and then later on met his daughter. So it was like and the daughter has a couple of kids, so there's five generations of Brits that I became acquainted with because of staying in that house right close to to uh, the port where we We're eventually going to disembark from. Uh, two of the guys that stayed in that house before me and Gus uh, were on the LST that was sunk, and uh, she told us about the two of them. And she said, one of the boys was Catholic, and we go and put light candles in the local church um, every day. And so, anyway, it was, it's a very impressive story, and it's a story in itself. So let me tell you from there. Okay, our turn to disembark. And uh, we get on a ship, and we're sailing. I met a Navy gunner, same age as I was. He showed me his quarters. And... Uh, one day we hit a mine cable, it was no big deal because the, the ship just rocked a little bit and the, the mine was off maybe 75 yards and that was nothing during the day. That night we were all sleeping in a hold, you know, that's where they keep equipment usually. And so uh, but we, we just lost, lost somebody. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we were sleeping in a hold in the middle of the night, <clears throat> a huge explosion. And the ship was rocking in and out of the water. And we all scrambled up on deck to see what happened. It was dark. And what we eventually found out is the Navy gunner that I had met that day shot down a German torpedo plane that dropped the d- torpedo. And w- he shot the plane down. And I don't know what what uh, uh, what caused the, to- the explosion, but apparently between um, – the torpedo exploding and the, the, the torpedo plane shot down this is what happened so uh i owed my life to that guy that uh, shot the plane down with the torpedo so anyway we got over that now we get to thousands of ships and uh <clears throat> it's unbelievable you've heard, heard heard them describe it uh i mean as far as you could see, the ships, this claims, 4,000 ships were sunk. I, I have a plaque on my wall in Torrance that, that reproduces the front page of the LA Times. I worked for the LA Times, by the way, uh, much later than that. My last job I had for 26 years, but I did a plaque of, of D-Day, and uh, they said 4,000 ships. But since then, I've heard 5,000 ships. So I don't know, nobody has really come to the conclusion of how many ships were out there, I guess, but uh, there were at least 4,000 ships out there. So we're on one of them and we're we're um, broadside to shore. Now imagine this, we can hear the 88s from the German artillery on shore going over us, hitting ships, saw a tanker blow up, bodies, debris in the water everywhere. Uh, we all got on the side of the ship opposite the shore, up against the bulkhead, to hope that we get some protection because we could how we're going to get hit anytime. We could hear, you call these screaming memes, this artillery. And you can hear them scream over you. And you can see ships getting hit. And the ship was tilted in the water because all of the weight of the guys are on the opposite side of the ship from the shore. Now, why they anchored there like that, I don't know, because it made a big target. The only thing I can think of is we were pointed in toward the shore. It's not as big a target, in my opinion. And so that's why they were broadside. Also, when we got off the ship, the rope ladders were on that side. Again, away from the sight of whoever's firing the 88s. Uh, and so, it seemed like hours, I don't know how long it was really before it got off, but went down the rope ladder. I weighed between 112 and 115 pounds without exaggeration. What I was carrying on my back weighed more than that, I'm sure. Uh, I didn't have time to weigh it. But anyway, i tell you, it was very frightening going down the, the rope ladder and getting into a, into a Higgins boat. That's the small LCI landing craft not the LST, which is a larger one. So we headed in the shore and listening to the 88 zinging over us, thought we we're gonna get hit anytime. We went in, turned around, came back out. Went in again, turned around, came back out. And I wondered for years why we did that and finally learned the reason for doing that is not because they're afraid of getting hit because their orders are going in. But you had up uh, Germans had obstacles in, in the water. I can't think of the name right now. What they call those things? Hedgehogs. Yeah. Anyway, the mines attached to them for any of the guys waiting in to touch touch them. But uh, the guy driving that was looking for a place to land, and a third attempt in, he couldn't find a place to land. So we had a, that's why we had to wade ashore. And you've seen pictures of that so i'll tell you one thing i was scared to death anybody who said they weren't scared is a damn liar or they're crazy uh maybe both but uh our job was to gather the dead now in those days we were segregated from the the, i call them black americans i don't call them african americans they're black americans and uh, their job was to dig graves and uh The first thing we did is pick up paratroopers that landed in the channel in error. You know, a lot of mistakes are made in wars. And the way I described that landing, the whole mess there, was it was organized confusion in my 18-year-old mind. I was 18. I turned 19 10 days later. And I was 19 during the rest of the war. And then I turned 20 in June, right after the end of the war in Europe, which was in May, May 8th, 1945, and I turned 20 on June 16th, 1945. Uh,
1: Can I clarify something? Yeah. So I just want to make sure, it's my understanding you li- you landed on Utah Beach, which okay, is... Yeah, I haven't touched
2: that yet. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So just talk about Utah Beach was a very different story than Omaha Beach for anybody that understands World War II. And if you don't know the difference between Utah and Omaha, I'll just tell you very quickly, uh, there was one big thing that made a difference. And that was Dick Winters and Easy Company, the 101st Airborne Division, who took out. The gun emplacements at Breakor Manor. And that story is in our film. If you haven't seen our film, please make sure you pay attention to that. Thankfully, um, because that was done, uh, George is probably here today, as are a whole lot of other soldiers that landed on Utah Beach.
2: Okay, well, yeah, and of course the Rangers were at Omaha. uh, And I'll tell you more about that later if we have time. But anyway, uh, half of our company went to Omaha Beach. The other half of us went to Utah Beach, and uh, I learned later what Omaha was like, and I'm glad we weren't there. But I'll tell you what, Utah was bad enough for me, and I wouldn't want to go through it again. I'll tell you that. And uh, so, because the paratroopers were drowned when they hit the water and all their equip with all equipment they had on, and the parachutes come over them, we we picked them up and buried them in their parachutes. Now we had these. Uh, uh black americans i told you about that dug the graves but just for a short time because you know one thing about i gotta t- say this one thing about the d-day landing was bad terrible we lost a lot of guys but the worst part of it was like a couple of days and of course there's was more fighting going inland our job was initiate temporary cemeteries. we initiated the two of the three cemeteries of St. Uh We, and you and I talked about it, uh, a Christian. I keep wanting to call you Michelle, Christian. Uh, we talked about the first general who was killed in Normandy. Remember Pratt? Teddy
1: Roosevelt Jr.
2: No, no, Pratt.
1: Oh, Pratt, General Pratt. Pratt. Yes, general yes, yes,
2: yes. Uh, general Pratt, I think it was 52 years old, and he volunteered to go with the glider guys. didn't have to. Well, uh, uh, he, he was killed. The pilot, I think, had an Irish name. I can't remember. It. I want to say Ryan, but I don't think it was Ryan. Something like that. But anyway, he lived. Uh, but our our company picked him up. We we picked up, we figure uh, he and McNair Mc, uh, McNair and Roosevelt we picked up four generals. But Getting back to the beach, Utah Beach, and uh, uh, we, we uh, soon had prisoners digging the graves. And then we got off of Normandy Beach and went to uh, three or four other cemeteries in Normandy. I can remember St. Mary Gleese in particular, and I think Marini. Uh, I think the other one. I uh, can't think of it right at the minute, but.
1: Bloville. There, there was the
2: Bloville. And then St. Lowe. And in I
1: Saint remember
2: St. Lowe in particular, because uh, that that's where uh, General McNair was killed from our friendly fire, from the bombing of uh, St. Lowe. And we watched Patton, uh, all his t- tanks rolling past us. They came in through the port of Cherbourg uh, and, uh, and you can say what you want to say about Patton. He, I equate Patton with Trump. They both have the same personalities, same persona. But uh, you know what? Pa- Patton helped win the war in Europe. He he, he was not a very good guy in, in some instances. You know, he slapped a the soldier. They know about that probably. Uh, he, uh, he thought it was, he was reincarnated to do what he did. But he... He was a big asset, I'll tell you, to our, our uh, side. And uh, so anyway, we got out of St. Louis, went down through Paris, got a big celebration in Paris, and it was like the end of the war. <clears throat> and so we had a temporary cemetery about 20 miles out of Paris. And one day, <clears throat> the only day off I had of 11 months was in Paris. And uh, they took us like truck. In Paris, dumped us off at the Bastille Tower, said, be back here at six o'clock. That was a joke. Didn't didn't get dark at eleven. <laughs> and my buddy, Jim Canaveras, who was quite a bit older than I was, you know, at that point, you know, I was 19 and he was like 32. And uh, we we're walking along in, in Paris, and he sees a sign atop a building. He said, oh, my God, it was in, in Greek, and he could speak Greek. He said, oh, my God, they're Greek there. Let's go. So we go there, and it's a Greek beauty shop. Well, they wouldn't let us go. We had to have dinner, drinks. By the time I got out of there, uh, we were smashed. <laughs> so here we are walking down a street in Paris, and we're looking for N19, which is a route to get back to where we wanted to go, and we couldn't find it. Well, for a uh, free French interior, FFI car pulled up next to where we were and and two two guys jumped out and two beautiful women and one of the gals took me by the arm another one took my buddy by the arm and we hit saloons all along shops I would say there and uh, what at the end of that there was no way we could find our way back we ran across a couple of GIs told them our plight and they said why don't you come and stay with us they're staying at the University of Paris and so we did, slept on the floor there that night. So we didn't get back uh, and we were missing. And so when they had roll call, somebody answered my name for me. N- nobody answered Jim Canaveras' name. So they put him on cemetery detail for a week, digging graves. <laughs> um, by that time, uh you know, we had German prisoners digging graves because we had them, like I said, a couple of days after living in Normandy. What I was going to say, and I got off on a tangent, was that Normandy was very bad. But you know what? Battle of Bulge was worse. First of all, it was worse because thousands more died there. In, in Normandy, you had the heat and the stench the stench of the dead bodies getting in your clothes you're sleeping in your clothes in the foxhole you don't have a change of clothes your shoes just you got you you got everything on your shoes your socks everything and uh, and and putting up your spitting and spitting your mouth is dry and, and and of course looking at the dead bodies you remember i said i did, had a big fear of death as a little boy and this is what i had to do and i did it like a robot while well, still in normandy I broke down about two weeks later, and a lieutenant pulled out his forty-five and stuck it in my ribs, and he says, get your ass back out there and suck it up. Sure. You know, you weren't you weren't uh, uh, babied uh, in, in, in that war. I don't know about other wars, because I was only in one, but I'll tell you, uh, nobody felt sorry for you. So I worked like a robot. It's hard for me to look at faces. Uh, and, uh, especially when you're looking at 18, 19, 20 year old guys, your age, you know, and all shapes and forms. But the worst thing I ever saw was a a tanker, you know, apparently getting out of his tank was on fire. There was just a ball of charcoal on the ground next to the tank. So, you know, it's not pretty. I talk to kids in schools all the time and I don't talk to them about this. I talk about the high price of freedom. That's my thing. The high price of freedom. My website is freedom ring for all. We weren't just doing it for ourselves. We were doing it for the people over there. In fact, I'm getting ahead of my story, but I did a film. I did documentaries. I did uh, one of them in Germany, uh, about the, about the German kids that were orphans and, uh, uh and how they were hungry and going through garbage cans for food and they were looking for love and attention and i was an army of occupation after the war for seven months so so i look at these kids they look just like our kids and so uh, it's uh i did a film about that so uh one of my films here is about it's uh, called it's
1: called uh, it's called, uh, uh you have your boxes of films right in front of you. Thank you very much.
2: <laughs> it's called America's Finest Ambassadors. You see me there? Yep. You see me? I had just turned 20. You see that little girl? Two-year-old German girl. You see the Jeeps down there? Yep. I'm going to tell you about the Jeeps later. I damn there got court-martialed. I'll tell you about that later if we have time. Anyway, yeah, I have them all right here. Um, uh, but but America's finest ambassadors, are our armed forces, because in every war since World War I, men and women of the armed forces befriended kids of the allies and the enemy, because after all, they're kids. They're not our enemy. And these kids are hungry, forlorn. And oh, my God, I mean, I get chills in my back just now thinking about these kids. And you just couldn't resist them. They're going in a garbage can. So we're giving them food, love and attention. And they were in my Jeep and loved it. They couldn't get in the German army Jeeps or, or vehicles, but they did ours. Uh, so anyway, I know I got ahead of myself, but anyway, the Battle of Buzz was very bad because uh, first of all, uh, the good thing about it is you didn't get the stench because these guys, it's the coldest winter in 30 years. The, the Battle of Buzz went on from December 16th to January of of uh of 44 to January twenty-fifth to forty-five. It went it went on for a month. And thousands of guys were getting killed. Forty thousand guys had frostbitten feet. I mean it was 30 30 degrees, I think it was like 30 degrees below, it was below zero. It was full so far below zero you couldn't believe it. It was so damn cold. So we lost a lot of guys there. And uh, more than Normandy. That's why I say it was worse than Normandy in that sense. Uh, you know. You mean worse in the bulge? Yeah, worse in the bulge, yeah. And you know, and you know, all of us in, in Normandy were survivors, really. All of us. I mean there, there's there's not just a handful of guys that talk about how rough it was for them. It was rough for everybody. It was you didn't know. Going to get killed the next moment. And I was scared to death. I didn't want to drown. Number one, I couldn't swim. Number two, it wouldn't help you. And number three, not number three, but number one, I felt that if I died, my, my Italian mother would die. She was very emotional, as you learned from at the graveside of my little cousin. So uh, those things are all running through your mind. I can't get killed. I can't get killed. <clears throat> kind of reminds me of some of these guys coming back from Iraq. <clears throat> I heard one guy talking about, you know, he lost an arm and leg and everything. He says, if I can just keep breathing, I'll get back to my wife. You know, and you, you think about things like that, at least some of us did. But anyway, battle of bulge. Uh, we George. had we, this, and then you can stop. We had 17,300 buried in a temporary cemetery at Henri chapelle Now it's right under 8,000, 7,992, I think it is. But 17,300, what happened to that 17,300 heroes that are buried there? Well, after the war, two years later, 1947, permanent cemeteries were built. Any soldier buried in a grave anywhere in Europe during that war, the remains were disturbed and put in lined caskets. And so with that, with that cemetery, 17,300, the average is that 60% of them went home in 1947 when the next of kin requested the remains to be sent home to any cemetery they chose at no cost to them. The other 40% remained there. So when you guys see these emails, like I get all the time showing cemeteries over there, and how many buried in each cemetery. Keep in mind, that only represents 40% of what was there. Now, the one at Normandy, for example, 10,000, those bodies came from these temporary cemeteries where we buried these guys initially in temporary cemeteries. When they were disinterred, they were sent to the Normandy Cemetery, which is the closest permanent one to those temporary cemeteries. So the average is 60% went home, 40% stayed. So that 10%, when you see, you know, I, I write back to these people and I say, you know, thank you for saying that, but let me explain something to you. And then I go into this dissertation, on how, that, how that only represents 40%. The other thing that really bothers me before we get off and the, and the things that I forget And this is why I go off in tangents. You look at the marble tombstones, markers, whatever you want to call them. You look at those beautiful white marble tombstones. Have you guys seen them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Don't say anything, Christian. What do you read on them? What do you, besides the the soldier's name, do you recall what you read on there? Do you read their name, their rank? What unit they were in and what, what town state it came from? What else do you see there? You, you read. Do you see their date of death? No. And I didn't know that until I went back 50 years later with the ladies you saw here a while ago. She, she was my fiancée because my late wife died in 1981 when I had two children, girl 11, the boy 10. And my wife was ill for five years with lymphoma, when the kids were four and five. I'm more proud of raising them than anything I've done for 10 years before they got to college, both of them. First, my, first my, uh, my daughter and then my son. Anyway, my son went to Notre Dame and my daughter went to University of San Diego, which is a private school. And me with one, one salary, I put my kids through college. I paid for everything. And more, but anyway, that's a tangent. I'll get off of that and get back to where I was, if I can well, remember where I was.
1: Actually, what I'd like to do right now is, um, we unfortunately we have run out of time for day today, and and it is very unfortunate because uh, it is just amazing whether you go off on tangents or not. It doesn't matter. It's amazing to hear your memories, um, and I'm gonna get emotional when I share this with you, but. Um, w- there are very few people that have the firsthand accounts that you have. And you do have such a clear memory and you are able to walk us through um, what those days were like. And only someone like you who's been there can understand the toll that it took on those that were there. And I can't thank you enough for the time that you've given us today and I really would like to have you come back because we're only at the Battle of the Bulge and we haven't even gotten to ask any questions yet.
2: Yeah, you- I've got a lot more. <laughs> I've got a lot more to tell you. You know what? I'm going to give you the ending now, okay? All right. Quick, quickly. The ending is, I got out of the service on uh, January 13th, 1946, after Christmas. We didn't make it for It's another story in itself about that missing Christmas. Okay, but anyway, uh, here, here's, the, here's the way I felt. I got discharged four days later on the 17th of January, and I hitchhiked home. I was carrying a duffel bag with all the stuff they let us keep, and I'm walking down my street toward my house crying. You know, here I, here I am. All these other guys are gone. No girlfriend, no wife, no kids. And, and uh, of course, when I'm walking down the street now, uh, I'm a young man. I just turned, I'm 20 and a half. Couldn't buy a drink in California. And uh, so that's what I thought about. And I got home, knocked on the door. And of course, my mother gave me a big bear hug and the Christmas tree was still up on the 17th of January. So that's all I can tell you right now. Well, Thanks a lot for listening.
1: <laughs> I have chills. I am just overwhelmed by your generosity to share your memories. Um, I am so glad you made it home. And who better than you? to tell stories when you're 81 about what was done in Europe to keep us all free. And I can't wait. I do want you to know we will start back at the battle of the bulge. Hopefully you can come back next week. And then after we get through the war, we can talk about your films. Um, Was let freedom ring the very first film that you did. Yeah.
2: That's what I was 81. This is the second one I did in France. Those guys are dead now that are with me there they all were in the in the first division and uh all three of them one of them just died recently at 90 oh no 100 excuse me he just turned 100 and died wow well
1: dead. we we want to definitely hear about that next week um hopefully you can come back next Wednesday when we record everybody can find george on letfreedomringforall.org correct? Yeah. So you can, that's his website. You can also look him up on IMDb to find out more. Uh, We will have him back to hear more about the war and then about his filmmaking career. George, it's been wonderful to have you. Uh, Josh or Jason, do you have anything to say real quick before we wrap up?
0: Oh, just thank you, George, for being on here. I look forward to having you back.
2: Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was really really moving. Thank, Thank you. you guys for listening. I could tell you were interested.
1: <laughs> I could they start. are.
2: I could tell I didn't bore you. you didn't <laughs> Not at all. You didn't fall asleep. Not at all. Okay. Not at anyway, all. As, as I said, there's no date of birth on the markers, only the date of death, which is approximated a lot, as I know. Yeah. So I'll let you go. All, all right.
1: right. Thank See you, everybody. Out. Josh, why don't you take us out?
2: Okay. Well, hey, everyone. I hope you enjoyed
0: that and, and, and look forward to the next time we're with George. Thank you for listening to Documentary First, where we believe everyone has a story to tell and you can be the
1: one to tell it. Yes, you can. Bye, everybody. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to Documentary First. We really appreciate your partnership with us. We can't do any of this without you. So thank you for listening, donating, and following along on our journey. We are supported by generous donations from people just like you. To make a donation, visit thegirlwhowarfreedom.com or support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash documentaryfirst. To learn more about our other works in progress, visit documentaryfirst.com or follow Documentary First on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Documentary First, edited and mixed by Jason Hoban, with music by Jeff Kurtnacker.